0: Fast Company Magazine calls her one of the most influential women in technology, and Business Week says she's one of the voices of innovation for social media. Uh, In March 2009, she began serving as the 2009 Scholar-in-Residence for Social Media and Nonprofits at the Packard Foundation. She specializes in helping nonprofits use social media. I am pleased to have her with me on this podcast.
1: Great. So glad to be here.
0: So, um, give us, if you would, just the once-over on uh, on what you're doing at the Packard Foundation.
1: Okay, they have a program, and it's invitation-only, called Visiting Scholar, where they invite somebody who is sort of an expert in their field and is related to um, a program area at the foundation to um, spend some time working on a uh, you know on a project. And I'm working on a book project, and the other half of their time to be in the foundation. Um, working internally, but also with grantees. So I spend half my time meeting, coaching, doing trainings, um, consulting with um, many of the grantees at Packard, or internally with program staff. Um, and that could be anything from being on the team that's looking at the foundation's social media policy or how they might be using um, social media, or even just coaching people on you know how to use various tools. Um, and then, um, and, I've had, and the other half has, has been working on this book um, that I'm writing with Alison Fine, and it's uh, tentatively titled The Networked Nonprofit. It'll be published by Wiley in 2010. And the kind of short story about what the book's about is um, we've been looking at how does all the social networking and the fact that we're so connected, how does that change the way nonprofits are working? you know, the leadership, um, more transparency, you know, how does it change the culture inside of organizations? How does it have them like, work in a more porous way with other organizations that have similar causes, as well as taking a look at best practices and communications and fundraising as well?
0: I mean, the fact that it's so easy to organize on a grassroots level through social media, does that potentially threaten um, you know, nonprofits who are trying to organize around a certain cause?
1: I, well, threaten maybe, yes. <laughs> you know, it, the, nonprofits have been the ones that organize people. That's the value added that they bring to communities, you know, the ability to organize. But these platforms allow people to do that, to self organize. So, organiza- nonprofits that aren't looking at that and thinking about what is the value added that we bring to this, how do we work in this kind of new system, I think will be in some trouble.
0: So what so, based on what you know your studies and and what your area that you're focused on, what are some of your your best guesses on how you think um, nonprofits differentiate themselves in a world where people can self organize so easily
1: well that they that they have a presence and that it's not just a presence that they actually have um, uh, a person, <laughs> you know, whether that be someone who's the community evangelist that has the presence, that's making the relationships, that's working across with different causes and connecting with people um, as opposed to, say, you know, keeping it at arm's length and being left out of it.
0: I just, I know, like, when I'm looking online for information, like, say, Yelp, for example, I typically will sort my Yelp results by most reviewed thinking that, you know, the more people who have weighed in on something, the more trust I can have for it. Mm-hmm. So how does the voice of the individual, you know, really add value to, you know, a crowdsourcing environment?
1: Well, I think that's a different context. Um, with, with crowdsourcing, um, you know, it depends on the different type of crowdsourcing and how they're using it. But, um, but you, I think for something like Yelp, that if I was a nonprofit, I'd want to be listening.
0: <laughs> I mean, my no. thought is, like, you know, if, if I was searching for information about a cause that I wanted to support, you know, I probably would search through the normal channels people search. I'd search through Google. I'd search through Facebook. I'd search through Twitter search. I'd probably do Google blog search, Google news search and you know i I'd, I'd be less interested in what individuals are saying and more more interested in what the crowd is saying so if if you if the nonprofit wants to connect with me at that at that point so that i can become a volunteer or a donor to support their cause what does how does the voice of the individual make a difference
1: well at least beginning to have a presence and, and leaving what i call ant trails the individual who represents the organization there's this idea that um, I I'd always talk about uh, social media ant trails. You know, because ants, like, do two things really simply, really well. They haul stuff, and they follow scents. And it's like Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is like leaving simple trails so people can find you. And um, so, so if you are, like, leaving ant trails <laughs> out there in social media space, then people who have an interest in what you're doing are going to be able to find. Will be able to find you, and then they're going to start leaving ant trails about your work um, if they've been able to connect with you and have a positive experience. And through that networked kind of effect, you start to get more people who are commenting, you know, at a place like Yelp. Got it. That's how it starts. It's kind of like this emergent, collaborative kind of behavior. And, I don't I mean, know. Do you know the work of um, Eric Eugene Kim?
0: Um, I'm sorry, I don't. Say the name again.
1: Eric, Eric Eugene Kim. Eric, uh, Eric so,
0: Eugene Kim. Yes. Got it. Kim.
1: Kim. Um, he's doing the strategic plan for Wikipedia, and he's an expert in kind of um, self-organizing online collaborative activities Okay. and networks. And so that's what he talked about in terms of what's important for, like, large kinds of self-organized networks. This is kind of ant trails. And I can tell you, like, for myself, just being present out there, I... And leaving a lot of entrails for the last six years, I will walk into places. I won't know people, but they'll like, oh, I've followed you for years. You know, I know about, you know, I know you've done this, 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 and this. Or even saying, oh, my friend over here, who's a friend of so-and-so, mentioned your work to me.
0: And what's the relevance of that in the context of Wikipedia?
1: Well, that's just one of his clients. But with uh, Wikipedia, it's, you know, people... Um, you know, finding one another by editing something or even setting up an account, being present.
0: Let me ask you, because, you know, you're, you're specializing pretty much, as I understand it, exclusively in social media for nonprofits. Is that right? Yep. So, so based on your work that you've done over the last six years, what have you learned about uh, uh, nonprofits communicating through social media that's different? than how a commercial organization or maybe a government organization might, might leverage those channels?
1: Well, they're not trying to sell anything, <laughs> for the most part, except for maybe selling um, their, the good, their outcomes and how they're, uh, what they're doing in the world. You know, I'm thinking about Wildlife Direct. I don't know if you're familiar with that organization. It's a pretty amazing group. It um, was founded by a guy named Dr. Lewis Leakey, who's a uh, wildlife conservationist. And it exists as a huge blog community, and the bloggers are actually wildlife conservationists. And it's set up by animal. So there's the elephant conservationist blogger, the gorilla blogger, um, so on and so forth. And um, so these conservationists are out in the field in in Africa, all over, and blogging about their experience. And, And that's able to then, since it's out there on the Internet, their donors and people who are interested in wildlife, intensely interested in wildlife conservation are able to, to find them and have a conversation about the work that they're doing. And then, of course, they also have on their site the ability to donate, and they've raised, like, millions of dollars this way. Uh, but they're not always in a campaign mode, but they're always um, building relationships with people who care passionately about wildlife conservation. So in the event that there is a um, crisis, that happens. They need to raise and mobilize people quickly. You know, they have that. They have them there. They have. They've. they kind of built their network before they need it.
0: So, so I guess uh, you're saying that you know, going out to build the social network when you have something to say is going to work. You've got to actually invest the time to build it before you need it.
1: Yeah. Like you. Like I think you know. If we get to you know the the kind of. Um, complaint about social network doesn't produce a lot of dollars when you use it for fundraising is because a lot of organizations haven't built their networks before they need it. You shouldn't be going out there, and the first thing you're asking for is money. That should not be your first approach. You should be. Go- um, I'll think of another organization, the March of Dimes Share Your Story community. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I, a couple months ago, I was um, on Twitter, and I noticed um, the word Maddie was trending, I'm like, oh, what celebrity is named Maddie? Who could that be, you know? Um, And it was actually a a young child, a toddler, who had passed away uh, unexpectedly. And um, it was trending because people were, it was like a networked memorial service. People were writing these eulogies, um, blog posts. They were tweeting it. And it was like, I mean, I was crying when I was reading some of these. And these are people who didn't even know the child. And so I dug a little bit further, and I discovered that Maddie was the child of a um, uh, of Rachel Spohr, who was an influential member of the March of Dimes Share Your Story community. So when the community uh, found out that the child had passed away, they just sort of leveraged this network effect. They raised $60,000 from the March of Dimes and plus covered the family's uh, funeral expenses. So I went and tracked down the um, community manager there, and I I um, really happened to know, and I said, okay, so what did you do to make all these people do that? What was your strategy? And <laughs> she said, nothing. She goes, we've, we've had this community for five years, and we've never, we have never approached it with asking them for something. We've always been there to be helpful, to connect parents who want to talk about what it's like to parent a premature baby and provide support to one another. And the, the parent of the, the child that had died was an influential member of the community. And as soon as they found out that um, that, that happened, it sort of took off.
0: It's interesting because, um, you know, as you said, they built the network. They've had it up for five years. They never really tapped it when they wanted something. It seems like they were always using the network to give but not to take. Is that right? Exactly,
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So, you know, there are these folks out there like Chris Brogan. I don't know if you've read his book, Trust Agents. Yes. But he's… His, I'm
1: in Chapter 10.
0: His <laughs> well, ratio. The Archimedes Principle. His ratio for sort of giving to taking, I think somewhere in there, if I remember right, is 1 to 11. You know, for every tweet you send about yourself, you should send 11 about other people. Do you have any any guidance or suggestions for nonprofits on, you know, how often should they be giving versus taking?
1: Well, that's a mind shift in some ways because in nonprofit land, we have scarcity thinking in a way you know, and and competitiveness, and we have to shift to abundance thinking. When we have the network, we have abundance. So I don't know if I have a a precise rule of thumb um, as as Chris does, but I try not – I I feel uncomfortable talking about myself too much on Twitter or other places, or I feel uncomfortable asking um, someone to do something before me before I've gotten a chance to know them and be helpful first. And, tr- and that they trust
0: me, and I trust them. So, so, so let me give you a let me give you a scenario and get your advice. So um, we're getting ready to go to the Copenhagen Climate Conference as a nation, right? The U.S. will go participate in Copenhagen at the climate conference, and uh, participating at the climate conference will be the U.S. Department of State. Uh, they will send the, the delegation that will represent U.S. and and um you know, hope the the uh you know whatever will happen there based on you know our participation as as a nation, us being the u s if you're listening abroad um, they launched uh the state department launched a Facebook page, and the Facebook page is going to provide updates. they're gonna send out links to live streams that are going on from over there and it's gonna be a great resource. Um, obviously, a lot of people very interested in the issue of climate change or global warming, whatever you wanna call it, um, and greenhouse gas and cap and trade, these being you know keywords that people search for and people notice. Um, yet they launched this Facebook page, right, and are hoping to build an audience uh, on this Facebook page prior to their attendance in the Copenhagen Climate Conference, which is early December. And they've just launched it. There's only a couple hundred people on there. Do you have any advice for the U.S. Department of State on how they could go ahead and build a community on that Facebook page prior to you know, participating?
1: Oh, God, what a question. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. Well, I, I hope that they just didn't throw up the Facebook page. I'm assuming they didn't.
0: Well, it's a Facebook page. I mean, it's, it's you know, could it be better? I'm sure it could. Is it terrible? No. I mean, it's I think it's a reasonably good Facebook page. Um, we'll have a link to it in the show notes for people who want to. If there's any listeners uh, who want to um, uh, fr- friend up the page or fan up the page, you can. I mean, really, the reason that they're trying to get people to fan the page is, one, because they want to have an audience for content coming from there. But, two, they feel that if they – you know, the more people that fan up the page – the bigger that audience, the more Im- the more s- serious uh, folks in Congress will take um, what happens there because it will be a show of, of support that, that people are, in fact, interested in this, you know, interested in what we do there. So, you know, whether or not you're listening or not, if you fan up the page and if they wind up with, you know, 80, 100,000 people who have fanned the, the page, then, you know, Congress will take that issue more seriously. Well-
1: well, if I was the State Department, I would, probably, I would have hoped that I would have made friends with all the hundred or so environmental nonprofit organizations that are activists that also have Facebook pages and, and um, made friends with them and had created some sort of way to work with them. Um, in fact, they are. You know, informally, I've seen where groups of nonprofits and the people who are doing social media have been, like, working together in these kind of informal kinds of networks in a networked way. So they do things like they're connected, so they could send out a quick kind of um, message to one of their please retweet this. So if you have like a hundred people who are working in a, on a on a cause, you know, in the environment or. Or whatever, um, and they're connected, and they're each retweeting each other's messages. That's another way to get that out there. So, Great idea. Uh, who, are they part- who are they partnering? Partnering with? I mean, if I was if I was this social media person running the Facebook page, I would have been on the phone with all the identifying who are all the social media people with different environmental organizations, friending them, joining their fan page.
0: And, and so your that. feeling is. <laughs> That, the, that That's still a phone call. That's still picking up the phone, calling somebody. Yes, talking. relationships,
1: like I was saying, you know, um, or I would have like done a little bit of time like looking who are the, who are the influencers in the climate change campaign, you know, and, and supportive of, um, of this who are on social networks, you know, who are those people? I'd be, I would have been cultivating them. And getting them, to, you know, to invite their friends or blog about it or whatever. I would prob I mean, I also believe in multi-channel. I don't believe that you, you know, what's that is just Facebook or just your social channel, social strategy. So I'm sure I would pr- try to get some um, coverage on it, you know, on, on the news or on CNN or, you know, in the New York Times and have the URL there on
0: the would, Facebook page.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I would, you know, have that. Um, I would have a little card for the Facebook page, be giving that out to people. You know, I'm here, as I mentioned, I'm up here in the uh, peninsula uh, south of San Francisco, and there's this, I was in Palo Alto a couple weeks ago, and there's this place called the Milk Pale. It's been there for like 30 or 40 years, and it's like a um, a fruit store. And they have this little sign outside, you know, like a supermarket sign. It looks like a movie marquee sign. And it says, join us on Facebook. <laughs> You know, um, recruiting offline for online.
0: Makes a lot of sense.
1: I mean, I was at my at the workshop I did last week. I had 100 people, and I, I did happen to mention to them, you know, and you can join my Facebook fan page, and I am modeling, <laughs> you know, offline, online tactics <laughs> and cross-channel promotion. Sure. Um, um, also, having a networked approach to inviting people for the fan page. Like if they, ha- you know, uh, you know that little... Um, if they had everybody who was connected with this on a project if they had a big project team would was then reaching out to their friends on facebook and inviting them and also making sure they had the recruitment badge uh, you know for their facebook fan page up on the on the state on the website i mean that's how i've gotten a lot of people joining my fan page was once i put the badge on um, my blog that accounted for i got a fairly big increase in members and then also having Um, people invite their friends. I ran a little contest, gave away some books.
0: Great ideas. Um, You wrote a blog post recently about two studies that were released on uh, nonprofits and social media. Um, Can you summarize them for us? Let's start with the Weber-Chanwick social impact report
1: great which I thought was a great study um, um, I thought it was some, some useful information in there. Um, their, um, their findings basically the, um, is that, that, that there’s been a lot of experimentation, but, um, but only half of the nonprofits are really active users, and that’s pretty common. kind of We tried it and it didn’t work. Like so I, I may mean, see this it's I, mean, I saw it with email, I saw it with early website stuff they They sort of go into it, they have a bad experience and just say, this doesn't work. <laughs> um, I, um, a lot of them don't have the infrastructure or the um, staff and expertise uh, necessary to take um, advantage of social media. Um, so a lot of that has, has to do with kind of like the busyness. <laughs> you know, nonprofits are only, uh, always under resourced, and I, I'm a big believer in you know you need a lot of simplicity to simplify your work. Work to figure out like what it is that you're not going to do, or social media really has to be embedded in your current workflow. So. Um, and, and organizations that have developed the capacity is because they're thinking creatively about it how can we restructure a particular job? how can we you know find a really good intern or whatever? So they found something like fifty two percent don't have the the capacity and um, and the other piece is about um, you, you know you know in any sector of the nonprofit section usually executive directors are really focused on the bottom line like I just spoke with a group of, I did a workshop for a group of performing arts marketing directors from all the big performing arts centers across the country. And, you know, I said, what's your burning question about social media? And they said, we want to know how to get seats into butts. (laughs) butts into seats, sorry. (laughs) We want to know how to sell tickets. How can social media help us sell tickets? And in looking at the different examples, it's kind of like, no, you know, social media can be really – help you do a really good job about educating and developing the audience to get them to the point of where they want to buy a ticket. Um, So there's a lot of, like, skepticism about the true value. And given that, the the study outlined some, you know, kind of high-level strategy points that nonprofits should think about when uh, looking at their strategy. And the one that I thought was a really, really good takeaway – I've been saying for a while, is the focus, less of a focus on visibility and more of a focus on engaging. Like, you, you know, really think about how you're going to engage your, your people to go up the, through the ladder of engagement from, to, you know, um, from, you know, hearing about you to actually buying a ticket.
0: And then there was another study by a Philanthropy Action.
1: Yes, and this one actually just—I mean, at least the, the part that I looked at—that's in their executive summary and the way that they were kind of headlining and telegraphing what they found was kind of um, the headlines, kind of social networks and mid-sized nonprofits. What's the use? And this one sort of highlighted all of the um, metric questions, like how much, how many dollars have you raised through social networks, and how many volunteers have you recruited. And sort of said that given, you know, the results so far, which have been pretty dismal, you know, nonprofits probably shouldn't be investing their time in using social networks, parenthetically, for fundraising (laughs) or or volunteer recruitment. So this was more of a kind of uh, glass half-full look at it.
0: Got it. Well, um, let let me ask you uh, this. This this question from Allison Noonan uh, submitted via Twitter. She's a public relations professional currently attending University College in Dublin. Uh, she's a grad student, and, and her question is, I'm currently working for a children's charity. Any suggestions on how we might make up lost funding with social media?
1: Okay. I, I, think, that you can, I think that's unhealthy to think about it in that, those terms um, because social media is not a get-rich-quick method, and it's, it's too late for that You <laughs> had to be an early adopter. And, um, and I also think that uh, it's not a, a life raft. And looking at it as a way to replace, you know, tomorrow what you're losing because of the economy is just—it's not healthy. Stop, you know. Um, you know, you—you you know, if you're in trouble, maybe you need to be looking at uh, really evaluating everything you're doing and looking at, you know, what's getting the best results. And I think um, looking at social media for. Donor acquisition is probably a longer-term strategy because you're not going to get big dollar y- amounts yet. Because most of the users of social media sites, even though there's older people using them, older people like me, people from the baby boom generation, most of the users are younger, are skewed younger, and they're not in their kind of major earning years quite yet. Um, but all of us want to be thinking about in nonprofits thinking about the next generation of donors and having them in our databases and having that and being cultivating and cultivating them you know you you don't want the majority of your donations to be coming in through snail mail and snail mail with wobbly handwriting <laughs> you know i heard a statistic and i know you know from someone who said, um, i heard a statistic someone um, someone told me confidentially that something like the average age of most nonprofit donor list is something like 45 So uh, the idea here is where, where's the, your next generation of donors? Where are they going to come from?
0: And, and, and you would think, you know, that they're, they're going to come from social media? I mean, is that, you know, is it the future generation did- of digital natives that are going to make up that slack?
1: Yeah, eventually. So that's where, you, and, and they're not going to be giving you big dollar amounts quite yet. But over time, it's kind of, it's, you have to think about the lifetime value.
0: This idea of raising uh, um, less from from more.
1: You mean smaller amounts from more people? Right,
0: kind of like uh, yeah. Obama did in his presidential campaign.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you want uh, you know you want mul- multiple strategies for, uh, with donations. You want you know we always call it the donor pyramid. You know I don't know if you if you done a lot of work in the. Um, nonprofit sector, but with campaigns, the typical thing was you know the triangle, and at the bottom you have more people with smaller donations, and as you go up in gift size, you have you know a smaller number of donors. You want to have them in all categories.
0: I saw According a study. Gift- I saw a study released by Pew. You probably have seen it too, um, saying that uh, donations over a thousand dollars are more likely to come from the net to be made online. Did you see that?
1: Uh, are you sure it was Pew?
0: I think it was. I think
1: it was the Philanthropy uh, the 2.0 study.
0: Well, perhaps. Either way, you and I will get that straight, and we'll have a link in the show notes.
1: Because it's my study. I'm an author on that.
0: Okay. Okay, great. I'm so,
1: glad you reminded me of it. from a year ago. from we'll a year ago. We late- did an analysis of um, uh, social media users that were
0: older. So we'll have a link to that on the show notes, and we'll have a link to the... Philanthropy Action Study, we'll also have a link to the Weber-Shanwick study, as well as a blog post that Beth wrote with her opinions about it. Another question comes from Twitter. This is Kevin Scarrett. He's director of new media at eduguide.org, and his question is, um, if, if resources are available, should MPOs create their own social networks or only participate in the other big ones like Facebook?
1: I think you need both. You know, Chris Brogan always talks about the outpost and home base, and and I think the idea here is that uh, our websites are becoming more social, and, um, and and content is having a social life, so to speak. <laughs> so, I, and I've seen this in different in different um, models, and I think the most advanced model is uh, okay. So you have your website, and your website has what's called social features. You know, whether that's an integrated social network or whether it's the ability for people to log in and make friends with one another or to spread content or whatever. So, so there's social features on your website. You have your outposts like Facebook, Twitter, where you're, you're uh, interacting with your friends and fans and um, through engagement techniques. And what that's generating is this kind of organic pool of social content, people telling their stories or if you're doing a user-generated content thing, people creating things about your organization. And that that can be repurposed and redirected back to the website or out through other channels, um, whether it be, you know, your email channel or even in some cases print. I mean, Planned Parenthood has done a phenomenal job of that. They even have... Uh, they've reorganized some of their departments, they have a sort of content department. And the content department not only you know takes care of the content that's, lit, um, that's on their site, but also repurposing content from social places.
0: Um, I also want to give a shout out to the Austrian Cultural Society. Uh, we finally did the interview with Beth, uh, so you're gonna get it uh, as soon as we uh, release it. Now, the way I met you, Beth, is I was doing some work for the Environmental Defense Fund, and they said, hey, you know, we want you to keynote our, uh, our uh, staff retreat, but then we also want to play this game that we played with uh, Beth Cantor, which is this social media game. And we actually did play it there. Tell us what the game is.
1: Okay. The, the game got started, actually. I had an invitation um, to teach a workshop over in the U.K. about three years ago, and I had been blogging about nonprofits and technology, and I connected with um, a guy named David Wilcox, who writes about nonprofits and technology in the UK. And so I, I felt I needed someone with me with a British accent. <laughs> I went to London, so I said, "Hey, let, you know, want to teach this workshop with me?" And um, and so he came up with this idea. Well, what about this game? So we created this game, and it was about really about how do you. Um, coming up with a strategy. How do you figure out a social media strategy? You know, how do you define the audience, figure out your objectives, and then go through this kind of simulation process of picking out the tools. And we, um, so there was actually a deck of cards that <clears throat> gives you audience research. It gives you a variety of objectives. It gives you good practices for strategy. And then it also gives you the tools um, on each card with a definition and some questions you should ask about tactics so the idea is that the groups that play it they go through this kind of strategy simulation of trying to pick the right tools related to a strategy and this game has been so we put this up on a wiki and put the materials out there and people just started remixing it and so and we've taken it all over i took it to cambodia when i did training to romania it was remixed into italian by francesco (laughs) and um and there's been a lot of different remixes um for different organizations so um, the folks from EDF happened to be in a workshop that I taught um, last May maybe yeah last May in DC and um, and they they really thought the game was a great you know teaching tool, so they wanted to remix it for their staff retreat so they actually wanted me to come and um, facilitate that but I was someplace I had another uh, conflict with it so I connected them with a colleague of mine who had taken the game to Russia, Teresa Crawford, who worked with their trainers to come up with a train the trainer, you know, a detailed kind of step-by-step of how they should um, tweak the cards and how and the facilitator instructions because I you they did this in a really big way, didn't they?
0: Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. There were 350 people there and they broke up into teams and each team broke up into tables and they had a bunch of trainers there. And um, then every table came up with their best idea. It was voted on by the team. And then those best ideas were then developed and presented in front of everybody and, um, and voted on, and the best ones won.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, which is great. And the, the model I use is usually with a group of people that aren't from the same organization. I just did it with 100 organizations. So I had 10 tables working on, the, on a, a fake scenario <laughs> that's usually humorous because we take, try to take people outside of their usual problems. Um, and then when we we do some social neary, social engineering of the group so that we have someone who has technical expertise in each group, someone who has communications planning, and someone who is a good facilitator. So the groups are actually just working by themselves, and as a facilitator, I'm just cueing them, okay you have 10 minutes left now to figure out the audience. Let's go to the next, you know, the next phase.
0: And, and that's get the next- that's pretty much the way that it did work. And I'll tell you, it was great because people got involved and they were really thinking about these, these different concepts of of listening, engaging. What are the other three? Listening, Let's engaging. Listening,
1: engaging, spreading budge, social content, and social networks. Right. And then I added a, a phase of, you know, offline, online connection and, you um, and the other piece of it, I don't know if they did it like this, is I have um, Earth, uh, Life Happens cards. So when, I, when the group gets their strategy, then they get the opportunity to win extra points if, you know, uh-oh, your board and staff are really resistant, and, they're not, and they were refusing to use these tools. You, need to come, well, you can win two extra points if you come up with a strategy um, to break down the resistance. Or congratulations, you figured out what the metrics are to measure success. Win two points. So you have to so the group has to then come up figure out what metrics they're
0: going to use the, the two things that I struggled with the first was in order to map a strategy obviously you've got to listen but when you're playing this game in this type of a setting often you don't have the time or you don't have internet access and computers so you can't actually listen so you're basically basing your 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 your, your strategy on the assumption that your audience is in the channel that you're going to engage through.
1: Yeah, and as we say, this is a simulation. Um, And usually what I do at the end of the game is I do kind of reflective practice. Okay, so if you're going to go home and take this into your organization and you're actually going to have real life to actually plan and implement a strategy, what would you do now? And that's where we get into the conversation. You know, I hear a lot of, well, we'd phase this. We'd do a listening for, um, piece first, and we want to make sure that the <laughs> you know, these are the keywords that we'd actually be looking for and that, you know, this is, and this is a pilot that we might come up with to test whether or not, you know, folks are on Facebook.
0: Well, I got to tell you, I think it was brilliant putting this game together, and I thought it was so effective because it was the first time I really saw in a conference environment like this people not just hearing but actually participating and actively trying to employ some of the things that they had learned about social media. The other part I struggled with was that the points. I just felt like. Oh, you
1: know, I completely revised the point system. Okay, um, so
0: how does that work now? I mean, like.
1: Oh, it worked beautifully. Because um, I I've, I've figured out where, see, it's a feedback loop, like social media. And, and actually, it's very much like game design. You know, when gamers create a game, the first reiteration of it is there's lots of problems. You, you observe how people play the game and where they get stuck. And then you, tweet, you change elements of the game. So the thing I had been watching for, the, the deck of cards that they had was the... Um, from a month ago was like the first time, and now I've done it like four times, so I was able to tweak it because <laughs> I added some things. So, um, so so what was happening is I, I had to lay out the point system to kind of lead people to a good strategy. So the listening tools you know, were only one point instead of five points. Um, and and it's sort of aligned with how much time and how much cost it'll take and, or how long it takes you to get results. So we tweaked a bunch of things and I, it worked much better. Usually what happens is I get a lot of people leaving there with more of a commitment to wanting to listen because, I, I don't know, I think, I don't know if it's just nonprofits or if it's also businesses, but people want to skip that step. <laughs> I don't know if you find that.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I really did enjoy uh, participating in the game and, and um, uh, I'd love to uh, you know, get a chance to play it with you sometime.
1: Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> well, I, I usually, you know, I just facilitate. Uh, the, the, for me, the really fun part, or where a lot of the learning comes, afterwards, when the groups get up and present, and and if it's and that way you sort of switch into masterclass mode, where you listen to the strategy, you just give, you know, you point out what was really good about it, and you listen for things that, are, that may be missing, and sort of give a few tips. But the really rich learning is the reflection back on. Okay, now you've done this. Simulation. How are you going to make this real in your organization? And some people have even left saying, you know, we really don't have a really good communications plan, and it's really hard to really have a social media strategy unless you have a really good, solid communications plan. Or, gee, we, we, we didn't do our listening at all. We need to really go back and focus on that first, or it's not going to work.
0: To my buddy Bob Crashaw in Canberra, Australia, I waited as long as I could to get your question, buddy, but we're going to have to wrap it up now. Um, So, Beth, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me.